He leads a $1.7 trillion federal agency that touches on the most important and critical issues in everyone's life, their health. We're honored to have the Secretary of the United States Department of Health and Human Services join us today. A woman is three times more likely to die of a complication during pregnancy if she happens to reside in a state that restricts her access to abortion care services than if she lives in a state that gives her a full set of the reproductive services that she needs. And so we are seeing women and their health harmed simply because of the politics in that state. So we at the federal level are doing everything we can to continue to protect a woman's right to access the care she needs, including abortion care. Javier Becerra is the nation's top health official. He's overseen the country's emergence from the COVID pandemic, but the challenges remain great. He's dealing with everything from a low COVID booster rate to abortion restrictions following the Supreme Court decision. Secretary Becerra is the 25th person to lead HHS, and he is the first Latino in this role. Just because we got the first vaccination, we're not done. Because just like the flu, just like the seasonal cold, we could see a reoccurrence. The difficulty here is that COVID is different from the cold. COVID kills you. The cold, we know how to deal with much better. And so if you wanna stay healthy, you wanna stay alive, please do what we know is safe and effective. Get vaccinated, be up to date. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, Secretary Becerra, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. You and the Biden-Harris administration have announced a series of actions to protect consumers from junk health plans, stop surprise medical bills, and limit excess costs that lead to medical debt. I wonder if you could share with our listeners an overview of what's being done and why. So maybe I can start by saying that it's hard to believe you're going to be healthy, have a sound mind, if you don't have peace of mind, if you can't uh, believe that you're gonna to go to the doctor and come home and afford to pay the bill, if you can't uh, easily and freely believe that you could take your child to a hospital when your child is sick, it's hard to believe you're gonna have peace of mind. President Biden has wanted to make sure that not only do we have health insurance coverage, but that that coverage is meaningful so that when you go and use that doctor or that hospital, you don't go bankrupt by the bill that you get in the mail. And so we're, we're, he wants to make sure that if you're gonna have insurance, it's not junk insurance so that when you try to use it, there's nothing there for you to get covered with. You end up paying everything out of pocket. That's what junk plans are all about. They, they, they uh, offer you a plan that says, you only pay small amount up front and we'll cover you. What they don't tell you is the big price comes once you try to utilize a doctor or hospital services. President has also said, let's make sure that no one gets a bill in the mail that they were not expecting. No surprise medical bills. And so what the president has done is said, hey, we're going to seal off consumers, those patients. Once you come back from using a medical service, you should not be getting a bill in the mail three weeks later that you did not expect. That provider cannot do that to you by law anymore. And the president has asked us to make sure we enforce that new law. Well, that is incredibly uh, important. We've all heard those stories from friends, neighbors, and patients uh, about their experience. But Secretary, we're nearing the immunization season. We recently interviewed Dr. Fauci, uh, who really drove home the point that only 20% of Americans have received the COVID booster and that we've got to get that to 50% to be effective. How can we do that? 
Well, first, we have to continue to reach out to Americans let, and let them know that just because we got the first vaccination, we're not done. Because just like the flu, just like the seasonal cold, we could see a reoccurrence. The difficulty here is that COVID is different from the cold. COVID kills you. The cold, we know how to deal with much better. And so if you want to stay healthy, you want to stay alive, please do what we know is safe and effective. Get vaccinated, be up to date. And we know that the flu season is coming. And so we're encouraging everyone once again, please get vaccinated, get that updated vaccine. Today, the vaccine really targets the most aggressive of those COVID variants. And so if you want to stay safe, if you want to be able to hug your and kiss your grandmother without feeling that you might infect her, please get vaccinated. Well, that's that's such an important message, Secretary. And I know health centers across the country, private uh, providers are all giving that message. And we remind people to listen to those that you trust. It may be somebody from the religious community, it may be uh, a family member, but it's so important to do this. Secretary, I, I want to shift and talk a little bit about something that I know is important to you. 93 million Americans are on Medicaid or CHIP, which is really an outstanding number. Uh, a real tribute to the administration, but the end of the public health emergency, all of the patients now are being redetermined for eligibility. And yet in the last three months, 1.6 million Americans have lost that uh, Medicaid coverage. And of that group, about a third are children. Uh, I'm wondering uh, what you and the department are doing uh, and what's your thoughts about, uh, is this too many uh, losing that coverage? Well, as you know, President Biden is all about making sure every American has access to health care. That was his, one of his principal goals when he came to health care, more coverage. And in fact, we've gotten there for the first time in our history. More than 300 million Americans have access to a doctor or a hospital because they're insured. President Biden really pushed hard for that. And now he wants to make sure that we don't lose people. And the Medicaid process requires that everyone fill out the forms that show that they are eligible to receive Medicaid as their services. And so we want to make sure everyone does complete the process. For about three years, people didn't have to worry about the process because during the pandemic, we essentially said by law, we're not going to require people to re-enroll every year. You get to stay on Medicaid. So that's why today so many Americans have to fill out that process again. Please, when you get that form in the mail, fill it out. If you get contacted by your Medicaid offices, please get back to them, give them the information they need. And if you have kids, this is really important. If you have children, remember the chances are they continue to <clears throat> they continue to qualify for Medicaid or CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program, even if you may not qualify. And so please don't lose your insurance simply because you didn't connect the dots. Well, Secretary, I think you said something important. It's three years that people haven't done it. It's a muscle they hadn't exercised. <clears throat> And now That's is the right. time to exercise that muscle and go down there and get those forms done. Secretary, we recently marked the one year anniversary of the Dobbs abortion decision. And we know that research in Texas uh, is showing a sharp increase in unplanned and unsafe births under the strict abortion law. What do you think uh, the department can do? What more can the department do on reproductive rights at this point? Well, first we're gonna do everything under the sun to protect the health of every American, certainly a woman and her reproductive rights and access to abortion. Uh, you have to remember that in a, a woman is three times more likely 
to die of a complication during pregnancy if she happens to reside in a state that restricts her access to abortion care services than if she lives in a state that gives her a full set of the reproductive services that she needs. And so we are seeing women and their health harmed simply because of the politics in that state. So we at the federal level are doing everything we can to continue to protect a woman's right to access the care she needs, including abortion care. So that means if she's got an emergency under federal law, any provider, a hospital has to give her the services she, she needs for that emergency, including abortion care. We're going to make sure that we protect the privacy, not just of the patient, but of the providers as well. They're entitled to privacy. We're going to make sure that if there's uh, a medication that's available for any American that's prescribed because it is safe and effective that a woman has access to, to it. So medication abortion, mifepristone, everybody hears about the drug. That is safe and effective. We're going to do everything we can to make sure every woman continues to have access to Medicaid abortion. And so we're going to continue to work with those who are trying to protect a woman's rights as much as we can because no American should have to go without their health care. Secretary, I think we're almost a year out, if I'm right, from when President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Uh, it's had a profound impact on many areas, but I wonder if you could just focus in on what impact it's having on Medicare. So here's the good news. Today, the cost of medicines for many Americans is going down. Today, the fact that a senior on Medicare can find insulin for $35 and no more than $35 a month is a big deal because it's real. It's hitting, it's hitting today. It's making that pocketbook feel a little more full every day for those Americans who used to pay, I've been told, $115 up to $200 for that insulin. So it's a great savings that's acting today to put money in people's pockets, real money. What else? Today, that same person, if that person needs a vaccine, today, zero money comes out of their pocket to pay for that vaccine. That's saving them a ton of money. I hear about shingles. Maybe younger folks don't worry so much about shingles, but shingles is a, <laughs> a, a, a you don't want shingles, let's put it that way, because it is extremely painful. But it also is painful to pay for it. $200, $300 for a, a shingles vaccine. A lot of folks on fixed incomes can't afford it. Today, zero cost for that shingles vaccine. So Americans are saving a lot of money. Today, if a, a drug company tries to increase the cost of its drug more than the rate of inflation, they have to give back the excess that they charge to the Medicare program, which ultimately helps any Medi Medicare beneficiary. And soon, Get ready, September 1st, we're gonna announce the first 10 drugs under the president's new lower cost prescription drug plan, uh, drug law, that can now be negotiated on their price. Mm -hmm. 10 drugs, we're gonna to start to negotiate to get a better price of, for Americans on those drugs. That's as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. So much more as well, but it's helping Americans afford their healthcare and it's keeping more Americans insured. Well, that is exciting. And we are certainly on the front lines hearing about this, particularly around the insulin. And I'm sure that your offices are hearing about it positively as well. Uh, and Secretary, you've also announced an initiative uh, that's very much on people's minds uh, to strengthen the nation's health workforce. 
Uh, we hear this in just about every discipline of the workforce. Uh, and this time with equity as a key part of the effort, tell us how this initiative will operate. Well, what's really important is that we, if we have a health professional, we keep them in the profession. Many are burning out. Many are finding that it's just too difficult to continue. COVID really put a lot of strain on families because not only did they have to worry about getting sick, but they were caring for the sickest of our fellow Americans. And what we want to do is if you if you went through the process of getting trained and educated to be a health professional, we want to keep you there. So we're working with states to try to help that uh, feed that pipeline of new professionals. We're also trying to help states <clears throat> provide to their workers the type of relief they might need. It may be to increase their pay. It may mean giving them a little bit more time off. It may mean giving them a little more training so they can move up the ladder. But whatever it is, we want to encourage states, and we're doing that by providing them with some resources as well as some technical support to try to help build that workforce and keep people in, that, in, in those uh, professions because we know that we don't have enough of our professionals already, especially, I should mention, especially in the area of mental health. We're finding that we're way behind in providing the behavioral health professionals that we need. And so we're, we're actually directing some monies in, that, uh, in, in those areas. And we're also, for example, making sure that slots that go for these medical residency programs that train up the next generation of doctors are going to those areas that are less uh, likely to have those professionals already, rural communities, poor communities. So if we can direct some of those medical uh, education slots there, we might be able to keep them there once they become full-fledged doctors and nurses and so forth. Well, that's such an important message. I know running school-based <laughs> health centers across the state, behavioral health clinicians are desperately needed. So we really appreciate uh, all the work that's being done. Secretary Becerra, we appreciate your time, your service to our country. Thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Secretary. Continued success. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, Mark, it was great to talk to the Secretary. Uh, we had a chance to uh, hear him speak and, and talk about his work when we were out in uh, Colorado at the Aspen uh, Festival Health a few weeks ago. So great to have him join us for that interview. I, I felt like his comments uh, really uh, gave us a sense of how enormous uh, the responsibilities he has is and also how enormous the influence to be able to make the kinds of changes uh, that have been made. Uh, when we were in Colorado at Aspen, he was on a panel with the folks who served in the role right before him, uh, Secretary Kathleen Sebelius from the Obama administration and Secretary Alex Azar from the Trump administration. It was really remarkable to hear their frank comments that night. Well, it really was, Margaret. And first of all, it was great to have the, the secretary with us. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. That was a riveting conversation with the three secretaries, really sort of talking about a wide range of issues. You know, I was taken by something that uh, Secretary Sebelius said at that time, talking about the role that HHS has on the world stage. And it's such a, an important element of our diplomacy that when things are tough, and we see that now in the world, Margaret, uh, where there's uh, difficult situations, uh, certainly the, the issue with Ukraine, the issue uh, with China, um, but American scientists and the research that they're doing are embraced around the world. And we've heard in, on our own show a number of times 
from Dr. Fauci and others uh, talking about uh, the set of relationships uh, between scientists uh, across the globe is so important. We've had folks on from the WHO. We've had other people really talking about this global conversation that needs to happen and to keep politics out. Uh, but it was a fascinating conversation that evening. And, uh, you know, this is a very large uh, organization, uh, $1.7 trillion uh, that they all had responsibilities for. And, and they brought uh, all brought different energy and different focus uh, to their role. You know, I'm sure I've heard the term soft diplomacy before, but I, I'd really never heard it used so eloquently as when uh, they spoke about the uh, the, the largest diplomatic corps being the soft diplomacy of the uh, public health people that are out there across the world. And I think uh, it was the secretary who said, you know, it, it, it's one thing when you bring a new piece of equipment into a community. It's another thing when you save the life of somebody's child, as we've done with some of the vaccine campaigns and so forth, and uh, made a big impression on me, just how, how powerfully that represents what we hope is the best of America. Uh, you know, Secretary Becerra also made it clear uh, that there are very few HHS employees who are political uh, appointees, very small percentage. Most people stay in their nonpartisan role uh, through administrations as they change. But I thought one of the biggest uh, revelations was when Alex Azar said that in retrospect, he wished he'd taken the advice he heard that a cabinet secretary needs to be able to hire and fire who he wants. Uh, Secretary Azar was in charge during COVID, and certainly there were lots of reports, everyone heard them in the press, about the turmoil uh, the White House caused by uh, trying to interfere and inject itself uh, in HHS personnel and policy matters during the pandemic. So when he was asked what he was unprepared for when he started the job, he simply said, the Trump administration. And everyone seemed to understand respectfully what that meant. Yeah, a very, very difficult situation. You know, I was impressed uh, with our conversation today with the secretary uh, and his focus in on the work uh, and probably not well recognized uh, of the Biden administration on a number of fronts, particularly that Inflation Reduction Act, Margaret, uh, really focusing on Medicare, really trying to grapple with a very complicated issue, though it seems simple to all of us about controlling price because there's so many political factors that go into that uh, issue in terms of uh, what Congress will authorize the administration to do. And as we all know, <clears throat> the administration, when this was passed, well, was not allowed to negotiate with any of the drug companies, even though we were buying the largest purchaser, the United States government, all of us are the largest purchaser of uh, medicines uh, probably in the globe. Uh, and we still did not be able to uh, do that. I'm, I'm kind of interested what the 10 uh, drugs, Margaret, that they'll choose. Uh, I think we all Absolutely. probably have our own list of things, but um, really focusing on that. And then just some of the simple things, making immunizations, uh, really uh, making sure there's no obstacle for people to get the type of, uh, of uh, health care that they need. And then also his message about peace of mind, I thought was nice. Uh, which is so important, right, is this, I think a lot of people worry about the cost of healthcare um, and all of its implications. And if you're worried about anything in healthcare, you're worried about the cost of that medicine once you get it prescribed and how you're gonna uh, pay for it.
Well, although we didn't have a chance to uh, discuss it in our conversation with them, I was thinking about the juxtaposition of the uh, insulin, you know, been around for decades and decades, making that affordable, the 10 low cost drugs and let the negotiations begin. I'm sure that's going to be an interesting set of negotiations. But at the same time, we're uh, reading in the journals and in the press that uh, we uh, have approval for a uh, drug for Alzheimer's disease. It's going to be very expensive. And Medicare has said uh, that they will pay for it uh, given uh, the right conditions. So it's not like it's all tipped to the low cost and the generic. They're they're really interested, I think, in trying to address the things that uh, that Americans are worrying about, the families worry about. And I thought that was uh, really important that they've made that decision. Yeah. Well, again, it was uh, great to have the secretary, but uh, it was also as you started off, Margaret, a uh, real opportunity at the Aspen Institute uh, uh, Ideas Health Gathering um, that we joined uh, to really meet so many engaged people like the secretary. And, uh, you know, I know we have a couple of shows coming up uh, with uh, really some very bright and talented people. Obviously, we've always already aired uh, the conversation with Dr. Fauci, but I'm mm -hmm. I'm excited uh, to sort of revisit our conversation with the ARPA H uh, folks, who really um, I thought uh, have something that I think all Americans will be excited to hear about. Uh, really trying to uh, get some breakthrough discoveries uh, in the area of healthcare. Really a different approach, a different model, uh, if you will, about how do you go out and uh, uh, find these uh, 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 talented researchers, provide them the resources, and then really establish a set of uh, uh, KPIs that they really have to meet. And if they're not successful, move on to the next. Well, I, uh, I loved the stories uh, that we heard about uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, and this idea that when we need to mobilize the entire country to get something done, as we did during the COVID pandemic. You can command the military, the supply routes, the transportation routes, and you can make things happen in a day. They described one operation in terms of distributing the COVID uh, vaccines where they were needed as soon as they uh, were available to get them to those hard hit communities that were losing hundreds of people uh, every day and how they were able to do in a day what would take months. And that's, I think, a great message uh, for the country, you know, that our military is not all about fighting uh, wars against uh, enemies. It's about fighting for the health of people and bringing that same knowledge to bear. And I think we're going to see a lot of speed with some of the initiatives coming out of uh, the new projects. And that's right. And we have Dr. John Torres coming up, uh, medical reporter. Uh, I also found his backstory so fascinating, a flight surgeon, somebody who's been in the military, uh, somebody who continues to do humanitarian work around the country, not only is somebody we see on NBC News, but really somebody who's really very much engaged, very committed uh, to uh, many different communities, uh, including work at the South Pole. Uh, he's uh, he's has a really a uh, broad portfolio of interest and uh, very fascinating. I know people will enjoy that conversation as well, Margaret. 
Absolutely. Uh, and as we went from interviews uh, back to attending uh, the sessions, I also want to just uh, recognize that Secretary Becerra uh, talked about how important it is that medical professionals and medical organizations uh, have stated and determined that gender affirming care is value care, that it keeps people healthy, uh, it saves lives. He said that the Biden administration has included a rider in Medicare that says that any provider who receives Medicare or Medicaid funding must be prepared to offer gender-affirming care. That's a very interesting use uh, of the power of uh, the federal government to be able to make that kind of requirement. will be interesting to see how this plays out in the coming year. Yeah, no, that's such an important a uh, piece of legislation and uh, also one that is uh, top of mind, I know, to the people who work here at the health center and uh, to folks all around the country who are working at community health centers. Uh, we did talk, uh, Margaret, uh, recently about health centers and the valuable role that they play. Um, and yet they're not as well known uh, as they uh, should be across the country, caring for 30 million Americans but our good friend, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, has really uh, upset the apple cart down in Washington uh, as he is uh, chairing the uh, uh, help committee. And he has really basically said community health centers are underfunded and really need uh, to have the support uh, of the federal government. And uh, he's been a real champion uh, for uh, many decades now, Margaret, in terms of uh, his advocacy, not only for the good health centers that are in Vermont, his home state, but for health centers all across the country. And we're going to keep a close eye on that. We hope everybody who uh, has the opportunity to listen to conversations on healthcare keeps yeah. eye on the work that's going on in health center. And we should say rural health centers and uh, you know behavioral health organizations and safety net hospitals all across the country need America's support. Uh, they're really the front lines for so many people in need. And he really, uh, excuse me, understands that uh, without the workforce training and the workforce retention, you can have all the health centers, hospitals, clinics that you want. You still don't have care. And uh, his work on the Senate Health Committee uh, has been very important in that leadership around supporting health education, professional training, funding it, funding people uh, as they come through the pipeline, all very important initiatives. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we've spent a lot of time, uh, you and I and the colleagues that we work with uh, here at the Moses Weitzman Health System, thinking about uh, workforce development. You are a national leader in the formation of the first nurse practitioner residency program. And now through one of Moses Weitzman Health System's affiliates, uh, con the consortium is now engaged in accrediting uh, nurse practitioner and PA programs. And in our Colorado office, we run the National Institute for Medical Assistant Advancement. Such an important program for that first rung on the ladder of making sure that there's a professional uh, uh, track uh, for medical assistance and make sure that we start to professionalize the work that they're doing. Uh, but I'd also say in our Weitzman Institute, in the, our ECHOs and other things, we're very much focused in on this issue of trying to strengthen the health and safety net for all people uh, across the country. Thoughts on the, the work that goes on at the Weitzman Institute uh, on, on this area as well, yeah. Margaret? 
Well, you know, I, I uh, every once in a while, <clears throat> I think that uh, we're just so fortunate to have had this long arc uh, to go from the community organizing and the foundational pieces of care, uh, raise that up as advances in care became available, and then expanded out into research, education, training, policy. And to bring all that together, not just for the benefit of one system, but for the benefit of everybody across the country. You talked about uh, the size of the health center movement. 30 million people get their care uh, in a community health center. So this is a huge opportunity. And the research that we've chosen to focus on are really the issues of concern to our patient population, which represents an awfully big chunk of America. People who live with lower incomes are disproportionately members of racial and ethnic minority groups and are really affected by the social determinants of health, whether that's climate change as we see it now, or it's uh, food insecurity, housing insecurity, uh, unsafe neighborhoods, that, that whole range. And we thank everybody for joining us today in Conversations on Healthcare. Look forward to seeing you soon. Peace and health. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.